Hello and welcome to Working for the Word. My name is Andrew. And today I want to begin with a little story to start off this topic. This is a topic that has become very important to me over the years. And what we're going to talk about today and in some subsequent episodes is something that's not being talked about enough, I think, especially in the world of Bible translation. So the story is about Martin Luther. As you know, he translated the Bible during the Reformation into German, and by the time he died, over half a million copies of his Bible translation had been sold. Now here's the kicker. Most of the revenue from the copies that were sold never got to Martin Luther. These were men, publishers, who made millions off of Martin Luther's work. So, this is something that we've all heard about, we think about when we see the copyright symbol on all sorts of things. So let's imagine for a moment, let's do a thought experiment, that Martin Luther arrives before the judgment seat of God after his death. So, it could go one of two ways. The first way would be that God simply says, well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't pursue selfish gain and got the word out to as many people as possible. Now, the second scenario could be that God sits down with Luther and says, okay, Martin, let's think about this. I realize that copyright laws didn't exist back then, but you're a smart guy and You really should have figured out some way to legally, or whatever, make sure that you got a fair share of the profits from your translation work. You deserved it. You earned it. Or at least, you should have made sure that there was a way to keep people from unfairly making money off of your work. Come on, man. A lot fewer people would have gotten access to a translation of the Bible, but at least you would have made a lot more money and those bad guys wouldn't have ended up profiting so much from your work unfairly. I mean, I realize that if you had made a law that your Bible couldn't be copied without your permission and without you getting royalties, those bad guys still would have done it anyway, but that's what everyone 500 years from now is going to think and do. So you might as well feel bad for not being the first to do it. Okay, so that may be an unfair caricature slightly. But I want it to be a provocative thing to get us started. Thinking about where did all this copyright stuff come from? The truth is it did not exist during the Reformation. And that is partly why the word got to so many people. And that's why we're here today probably why you're here and listening to this podcast. That's probably why you are an evangelical Christian. And this is why the Reformation changed the world in so many ways for the better. So let's talk about copyrights. Let's talk about Christendom. And let's talk about being radically generous with the global church with what we have been given by God. From here on out, I'm going to be quoting and paraphrasing from an excellent article you need to download, you need to check out, you need to take the time to read and absorb and internalize, and it's called Letting Go by Tim Jory, and I'm going to link it in the description. So make sure you grab your own copy of that. 
the great thing about it is that it is Creative Commons. It is not copyright in the all rights reserved sense. And so you can run with it, share it. And that's what I'm doing right here. Now, Tim begins his paper by saying the vision that motivates the writing of this paper is a world in which the entire global church across all people groups and languages can freely share excellent Bible translations and other biblical resources without limitations on the retention, reuse, revision, whether by translating, extending, or adapting for effective use, remixing by combining with other material to create new resources, and redistribution. So, this paper is written with the intent of addressing certain misunderstandings about the need for unrestricted biblical content in every language, different models for meeting that need, the nature of copyright law, and how open licenses work. End quote. Now, you may be thinking right now, well, why is this even relevant? Why does anybody need to be talking about this? I thought that Christian publishers and Christian ministries, especially Bible translation ministries, automatically willing to give everything away, all of their content away for free to those who need it, especially overseas, right? Well, actually, that's wrong. So that's why we're talking about this. So if you have been believing that, then this is the podcast for you, because it's going to clarify a lot of these issues. So let's get started. First of all, this is not intended to criticize any other licensing models, but we want to help, I want to help those who desire to push biblical content and especially content that will help the movement of Bible translation across the globe. I want to help those who desire to do this over the wall of restrictions into the free and open world by pointing out the hindrances that prevent it from happening. Sometimes this is prevented from happening just through ignorance or misunderstanding. So, I want to work through this paper and give some of these obstacles, deal with them one at a time, because I've heard them over the years by many people in different ministries, same sorts of arguments against the free and open paradigm of knowledge sharing and resource sharing. Once again, those who own biblical resources, they're not obligated to to make their content available under open licenses. I'm not saying that this has to be for everyone. It's their legal property, and they have the right to do with it as they believe God would have them do. But but the point of this podcast is to help us think together about better ways of doing things, God-glorifying ways of doing things that are outside the box of what we have come to see as the commonplace. I also want it to be a challenge to those who have bought into or have just gotten used to the greed and materialistic mentality that has saturated so much of modern evangelicalism. We all have to admit that North American, Western, modern Christians are susceptible to this sin. And to this blindness, we have our blind spots. And the blind spot of selfishness, of self-centeredness, of greed is not foreign to us. 
So, you know, from the outset, I struggle with this. I'll be the first person to confess that. And so I need to memorize verses. I have on my verse memorization list various verses like Luke 12, 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. So before we get further into this topic, there are a few things that you need to know if you don't know them. First of all, the global church is expanding very rapidly, especially in recent years. And number two, that means that the need of the global church is expanding exponentially. We have so many people groups now with established churches that need biblical resources and need capacity-building resources to help them do their own theology and Bible translation. So let's talk about numbers. We've got just a few languages that have abundant biblical resources. So we're talking about a complete Bible, probably in multiple versions, study notes, dictionaries, commentaries, maps, original language resources, etc., And then we've got about 683 languages that have a full Bible, but they don't have an abundance of other resources on top of that, like study notes, dictionaries, commentaries. We've got 1,534 languages that have a New Testament, but also lack those other resources, including the Old Testament. And then we've got 1,133 languages that have selections of scripture and stories. And this is all out of the approximately 7,097 languages in the world. Now, let's say you are somebody in another part of the world, a minority group of a minority language, and all you have is a New Testament. Would you be content with that? We have grown so used to having an abundance of biblical resources that I don't think we can actually fully imagine not being able to access them in a language that we understand. And so what does it take then to build up those resources? Let's say you're that person and you're bilingual and you speak Pashto and you speak English. And so you want to just freely translate some of these awesome biblical resources that are available in English into Pashto. So what are you going to do? Well, first you're going to look at the book and it's going to say copyright, all rights reserved, probably. Let's say it's a commentary on the book of Judges. And so you have basically one of four options. You can go with the higher law model, which is just ignore the copyright law and say that I'm going to operate by the higher law of, you know, my people group needs this. It's something for the glory of God. So I'm going to be able to ignore that law and just go for it. And, you know, probably no one will hunt me down and sue me. And yeah, how are they going to find me? Then you have the other option of the independent model, which is reinventing the wheel. So you respect the copyright law and You say, okay, well, then that means I have to write a commentary of judges from scratch. So I basically have to ignore all of this amazing work that's been done by this scholar and uh, and reinvent it in some way. The third option that you have is called the dependent model, which is oversight by quote-unquote gatekeepers. 
So basically, there's many content owners. Let's say the the owner of this commentary of that particular copyright is generous, and if you just ask him for permission to translate and use the content, he would give it outright, no no questions asked. And for years, I've admired ministries like Desiring God Ministries with John Piper for doing this kind of thing. You know, they're very generous. You just have to ask them for permission. So this model is built on several implicit assumptions that greatly hinder its effectiveness at the end of the day. For example, the model implicitly assumes that everyone else who would benefit from a translation of the content in their own language, number one, can identify the copyright holder, number two, shares a common language in which to ask them for permission, number three, knows how to contact them and is able to do so, four, has adequate legal knowledge for example, how copyrights and licensing works. And five, has the ability to formulate a license request that accurately reflects their exact need. And then six, gets a response from the copyright holder and it's in the affirmative. And then next, understands the contract and also has access to the counsel of an intellectual property rights attorney and sufficient financial resources to secure their services and is able to comply with all the terms and conditions of whatever license is granted, etc. So these are unrealistic expectations, if we're honest, for the majority of situations, especially as meeting the need of the entire global church could require thousands of such processes happening concurrently with the same copyright holder. So the critical key point to recognize is that Regardless of the generosity of some content owners and the fact that it has worked reasonably well in some contexts, this model is intentionally designed to decrease availability of content. The whole point of reserving all rights for the content owner is so that everyone cannot distribute it freely and all requests for the content are funneled back to the content owner so that they can control and sometimes monetize access to the content. Now let's return to our example. You're a Pashto speaker in Pakistan, and you want to translate this commentary on judges. Well, the other scenario is that the publisher had put this commentary under open license. And so the default answer to the question, can I do blank, is always yes. So in this model, biblical content is licensed in such a way that anyone who encounters it is already pre-cleared to use it in accordance with the terms of the open license. So this means that you as the translator do not need to establish contact with the owner or negotiate terms and conditions for use of the resources, and you are not breaking the law by doing so. So once again, in the open world, Content can be shared in any format, on any device, by anyone, to anyone, online or offline. So, once again, in the open world, the Bible belongs to the church as its common property, with no strings attached. Now, this paradigm does not come without disadvantages. First, it necessitates a quite different approach to traditional concepts of ownership and licensing. It requires that content owners consciously think through the implications of copyrights and licensing, which is not a trivial undertaking. And then 
they have to overcome every hindrance that would otherwise prevent them from proactively making their biblical content available under an open license. The other drawback is that in the open world, things can also become less orderly because the restrictions on distribution and reuse of content have been lifted. So this results in an increased number of potential pipelines of new content, none of which are directly controlled by you, the original content owner. And so some, understandably, are concerned that the Word of God may be compromised and doctrine may become corrupt through this process, and so they argue that the risk is too great and it would be better to maintain tight control over Bible translations and biblical content, regardless of the inefficiencies and limited reach of this approach. So this concern is what Tim Jory calls bad things will happen to good content. That's the concern. So that's the first hindrance that we will tackle. It's the first hindrance of six. So there are six main hindrances to people embracing the open model. Number one, like I said, fear of bad things happening to good content. Number two, reluctance to give sacrificially. Number three, content-dependent monetization models. Number four, incomplete missiology. Number five, confusing copyright and trademark. And number six, misunderstanding open licenses. Let's talk about each one of those in turn. So once again, this first hindrance involves the fear that releasing some copyright restrictions on biblical content will result in malicious doctrinal distortion of the content. And this is perhaps the most pervasive and effective obstacle preventing the release of biblical content under open licenses. And this is exactly what we started with, the issue with Martin Luther and the enabling of bad actors to take advantage of you and even create pirated copies that are of low quality. And that's what happened back then. There were a lot of versions of his Bible that were just not very well done as far as the physical quality of the product. But this also gets to the heart of another big issue back then, during the time of the Reformation. And even during the time of Wycliffe, before the Reformation, when he did his translation, everyone could now have unrestricted access to the Bible in English. And so, and this scared the Catholic leaders out of their pants because they no longer had control of the theological purity of their doctrine. Anyone could interpret the Bible for themselves, which carries the risk of grave theological error, of course. So they thought there was just going to be more heresy. Henry Knighton, a chronicler of the Catholic Church, expressed the perceived danger posed by unhindered access to the Bible in no uncertain terms when he wrote, Christ gave his gospel to the clergy and the learned doctors of the church. But this master John Wycliffe, by thus translating the Bible, made it the property of the masses and common to all and more open to the laity. And so the pearl of the gospel is thrown before swine and trodden underfoot. 
So pretty clear and pretty harsh words from this guy. Um, Basically, in order to protect the church from the bad doctrine that would surely ensue if the Bible was made too freely available, well, they had to maintain their exclusive control of the Bible. So we have to ask ourselves, are we inadvertently, as the West, as the people who have all of the resources and the keys, are we maintaining this same kind of attitude or at least demonstrating this sort of attitude with our actions by always stamping all rights reserved, copyright, etc. on our resources? It's just something to think about. Now, Pope Pius IV issued this edict. If the Holy Bible be indiscriminately allowed to everyone, the rashness of men will cause more evil than good to arise from it. Bishops or inquisitors may permit the reading of the Bible translated into the vulgar tongue, but this permission must be had in writing. Regulars shall neither read nor purchase such Bibles without special license from their superiors. So the similarity between this anti-Reformation papal edict and the licenses restricting the use of Bibles today is remarkable. Number one, both are driven by the fear that bad things will happen if access to the Bible is not restricted. Number two, both employ a policy of discrimination where only those who are considered worthy by the ones in the position of controlling access to the content are granted permission to handle the Bible. It's kind of a paternalistic attitude, right? Number three, both establish gatekeepers in authority over the church who unilaterally grant permission or not to the church for how they can use the Bible. And finally, both require the permission to be expressed in the form of a written license. By contrast, the Reformers consistently and unanimously communicated the importance of free and open access by all people to the Word of God. So, in summary, the fear that bad things will happen to good content if it is made available under an open license is usually rooted in three assumptions that seem alarming but, upon careful scrutiny, turn out to be more frightening than actually dangerous. So, the first assumption is that restrictive all-rights-reserve licenses prevent bad things from happening to good content. But, that's not true. Copyright restrictions do not and cannot prevent bad things from happening to good content. If people want to break the law, they're going to break the law. The second assumption is that making content available under an open license makes it easier for cults or malicious characters to distort the content and deceive others by claiming it is the original. But in reality, this is not permitted by open licenses any more than by restrictive licenses. And then finally, it may seem that making content available under an open license makes it easier for cults or others who are opposed to the truth to perpetuate their error by granting them legal permission to create their own derivatives in which they introduce theological distortions. While this is legally permitted, it is highly unlikely to occur because they would be legally required to declare that their work builds on original work done by someone else, which would establish someone whom they believe to be theologically deceived 
and whose work is doctrinally corrupt as the authoritative source. And of course, they wouldn't want to do that. So the same open license that permits the creation of the derivative work also requires that the truth be made known regarding the provenance and authoritativeness of the original. So it's important to understand these things. Now, one thing that needs to be said at this point is that at its heart, this is a fear that can only be overcome by an unshakable confidence in the sovereignty of God in all things, particularly his self-sufficiency for the protection of his word. We forget that over the course of centuries, without copyright laws, before that was even an idea, God has preserved his word. We believe that. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be orthodox evangelicals. So what makes us think that suddenly, with this invention of this law, God is like, oh, I'm off the hook now. I can relax. I don't have to sovereignly preserve my word anymore because the rules and ideas of men will accomplish that for me. Let's remind ourselves of what Daniel 4.34-35 through 35 says. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? As one author put it, God is not a household deity kept in our safekeeping. And be warned, God's safety is not our business. Our role on this earth is not to keep the Almighty from mishap or embarrassment. He takes care of himself. Now, regardless of this reality, it may feel that making biblical content available under open licenses is risky. John Piper observes that in some things, risk is just simply unavoidable. And he paraphrases Dietrich Bonhoeffer like this, The futility of finding a risk-free place to stand has paralyzed many of us. Risk is the only way forward. Risk avoidance may be more sinful more unloving than taking the risk in faith and love and making a wrong decision. He also goes on to observe that risk avoidance is often based on a false sense of security. He writes, There is sometimes a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of risk-taking. There is a hypocrisy that lets us take risks every day for ourselves, but paralyzes us from taking risks for others on the Calvary road of love. We are deluded and think that such risk may jeopardize a security that in fact does not even exist. And so the risk of bad things happening to good biblical content is real, regardless of the license, and that's key. Regardless of the license, copyright restrictions do not even overcome this risk at the end of the day. Now let's get into number two, hindrance number two to embracing the open license model. This is the reluctance to give sacrificially. So setting aside this hindrance involves loving the global church to the point of being willing to give generously and 
irrevocably for the building of the kingdom of God, even if someone else takes advantage of it by taking the credit or getting for free what they might have paid for. Now, I hope you're still with me because this is so important. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 14. We all need to listen to this. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. That's Paul to the Corinthians. So this is simply a tangible application of the biblical principle of fairness in the church. Again, we see this in Acts 4.32-35, through 35, the famous early church passage that everybody knows, which says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. I think the idea of holding everything in common harkens back to the principle that we are merely stewards of something that God owns. Everything we have is not our own. It's God's. And that idea is totally counterintuitive in our culture. It completely goes against the grain of the mine and my culture that we live in. It's the air we breathe, right? I struggle with it. You probably struggle with it. I love to tell people about my pastoral ministry professor who told us how he does things in his home with his children. And this was incredible. I've never heard of anyone else who does this. He said that he makes it clear to his children from a young age that nothing is theirs. It's his. It's daddy's. So if they get a toy, they're a steward of that toy, but it's not actually their toy. So they can't fight with their brothers and sisters and say, it's mine. You can't use it. You can't play with it. It's mine. No, because it's daddy's toy. Their clothes are daddy's clothes. Their books are daddy's books. Everything they have is daddy's because he bought it for them and he gave it to them. And so he said that you could even talk to his 16-year-old daughter and ask her, whose socks are those that you're wearing? And she would say, those are my daddy's socks. And all that for the purpose of getting them used to the whole concept that we struggle with so much every day that it's not our money. It's not our, our content Everything has been given to us, and we're just stewards. So generosity, by definition, requires a willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. Releasing biblical content under an open license for the good of the global church gives for free what might otherwise be sold for greater profit. And to do this, we have to be humble, right? Because it makes it easier for others to take advantage of our generosity by increasing their own ministry. So we have the example of Paul in prison, right? He was taken advantage of by those who preached Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. So he wasn't concerned that he was decreasing in name recognition and that others were gaining at his expense because 
he was laser focused on the true objective where he says, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Paul cared more that the kingdom of God advance than that he be recognized as the one who advanced it. And this is reminiscent of John the Baptist, right? He said, he must increase, I must decrease, John 3.30. As well as Paul's endorsement of Timothy, who was not like others because, quote, they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.21. So, this is what we need, right? Examples of a selfless, humble, and Christ-first mindset that stands in stark contrast to the attitude of some today who evidently have the good of their commercial enterprise way before the good of the global church. Here's an example. Personal communication from a Christian publishing company, an executive of that publishing company. He writes, The thought of releasing some of our biblical content under an open license makes me full of compassion for the poor man in Papua New Guinea who doesn't have two nickels to rub together. But, now listen to this, (laughs) but when I think of people who could afford to pay for it, now able to get it for free, it gives me a rash. And I've heard this argument before, not in exactly those terms, but... There really are a lot of people out there in the church who just cannot let go of this idea that, oh man, all those rich evangelicals out there who really could afford to pay for it, now they're going to get it for free along with all the poor people all over the world? That's just not right. To be honest, I think Paul would have given that mentality a swift kick in the rear. So the point of all this is to show that If those who own biblical resources are willing to give sacrificially, those resources can be used to their fullest for the glory of God and the good of all his church, not just the people in the privileged Western North American countries. Anyway, that's all for today. I'm going to continue discussing these further objections and hindrances in the next episode. So make sure to subscribe, and if you enjoyed this, found it edifying, please go ahead and share it with others, and don't forget to look in the description for the link to the paper that I'm basing this off of. There's a lot more in it that I'm not covering in this podcast. Here at Working for the Word, we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1.